Thank you, Connie, for those prayers. And good morning, church. It's great to be with you all today, whether you're here in person or online. Um, it's great to worship God together. Um, we are nearing the end of the Heaven and Hell series, and some of you are probably ready for that. And uh, But I want to um, invite you to ask any questions you might have that have been stirred up during the series on any of the things we've talked about. Um, you can scan that QR code there and send in your question. You can tell it to me directly. But if you have a question, um, send it today or tomorrow. I told uh, people I'm not going to answer questions that are sent Saturday night, next Sunday, because I do want some time to prepare. But if you do have questions, let me know, and I'd love to address them next week as we kind of do a recap of the entire series. Today, we look at this question. How many of you have ever heard this question before, once saved, always saved? I know for me, it was this question I heard early on in Scripture and lots of discussion and debate, like if you became a Christian, let's say way back when, are you forever a Christian? If, does it matter how you live your life? Does it matter what you believe? It's this concept of have you um, done something at some point that now secures your eternal salvation? And so... I want to look at that question through this lens of these two different images. The one on the left, we've been using this through the entire series to kind of unpack and look at these important concepts that Scripture talks about. With the one on the left, how it was presented to me is if you're here on earth and you believe all the right things that you're supposed to, then you get this escape plan to heaven. And you want to be on that bus to heaven because you definitely don't want to go to hell. So if you can tick all the right boxes on your belief system, that gets you on the bus, and it's really seen as an escape plan. And maybe there's a few things that you should do, so what's the number of things I have to do? Then I can be on that bus and get out of here. Now, we do see scripture that talks about the importance of our belief, and I want to highlight some of those, but before we do, let me pray. God, I thank you that you are here. I thank you for your word, God, and I pray that your Holy Spirit helps us to understand and unfold it today and figure out how to live in response to who you are, Jesus. In this we pray to you. Amen. So Dallas Willard, um, I'll be looking at a quote from him. His book, Divine Conspiracy, has been an important one for me. And he talks about this idea of kind of belief only or just enough of Jesus to get saved. And he calls it vampire Christianity. I want just enough of Jesus' blood to get me to heaven. And so this once saved, always saved kind of emerges out of that same deal. Like, what's the minimum amount I need to invest to, to get this salvation? So let's look at some scriptures that talk about the importance of belief. John 5, 24 says this, Very truly I tell you, hear, whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but has crossed over from death to life. So here Jesus is lifting up the importance of belief and leading to eternal life. He also says at this in the next chapter, For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise them up at that last day. This idea of Jesus' is coming and the resurrection, and we'll all be raised. We'll sing about this at the end of the service. But again, belief, belief, belief. 
will lead to eternal life. Paul picks up on this theme as well in Romans, and he says it this way. If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Okay? And for Abraham, this would have been God, not Jesus, right? Because he lived before Jesus was you know, burst on earth. Okay, So again, this idea of believing in God is what led to righteousness. Now, with this idea, and we could form this theology around these verses, yep, it's all about what you believe. I, I liken it to an example of marriage. What do you have to do to be married? In Hong Kong, you have to go down and sign the registry, right? You've got to make these vows, and you sign the registry, and you're married. Now, if somebody asked you, maybe they'd never heard the concept of marriage, and you were explaining marriage to them, what might you say? Probably a little bit more than signing a certificate, right? And I think that's how this image on the left can sometimes be translated. It's important that you sign that certificate that you are a Christian so you can go to heaven. The second image, though, is a little more complex. We see this beautiful creation. We know that sin has pulled apart heaven and earth, and God's plan, his rescue plan, not his escape plan, has always bring to heaven back to earth. It's what Jesus says we should pray for, and eventually, after Christ returns, it will be fully restored. And so with this view on the right, salvation is more about not the destination, but the process of getting there, about bringing heaven to earth, about this lived-out salvation. So let's look at some scriptures that can emphasize that for us. In Matthew 12, Jesus says this. We'll start in verse 36. But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the last day for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted or justified, and by your words you will be condemned. So now Jesus is talking about not just belief, but what we're actually speaking. There's a judgment based on what comes out of our mouth, leading to justification or to condemnation. Jesus also says in a few chapters later in Matthew 19, he says, Just then a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? So this person didn't have this concept of, if I just believe, that will be enough. He knew that his actions were a part of that. So what must I do? And Jesus says, if you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Keep the commandments. And Jesus clarifies for us later, well, what are the most important ones, right? Loving God with all of who you are. Loving your neighbor as yourself. It's not just an idea in my head that brings salvation. There's actually a, a reorientation to life. There's a different center to the life now. I have a new center, and that center is Jesus. So keeping the commandments is important. John 3.36, Jesus says this, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever disobeys the Son will not see life, but must endure God's wrath. So there's this belief in Jesus, but also this obedience that Jesus talks about. James picks up on this theme in his letter, and he says, You see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not by faith alone. Of course, James is the famous one that says, Faith without works is dead. So there's this connection in the salvation process to life, 
to how we're living life. Of course, Matthew 25, this, the famous parable about the sheep and the goats, and this group comes to Jesus, and what does he say to them? He said, I was hungry, I was naked, I was thirsty, I was a stranger, I was a prisoner, right? And you fed me, you gave me something to drink, you visited me in jail, and those that had done those things, right, were welcomed in. So this image that we have here, we can see a very different understanding on the right about what this is, about it's not just about this future reward, and it's not even primarily about this future reward. It's our salvation right now. How are we bringing this heaven to earth now? How are we living out God's kingdom now? It's not an escape plan, but a reconciliation plan that God wants to invite us all into as his followers. All right, I want to bring a verse that I hope um, I had questions after the first service. Um, People were like, asking questions, not about the previous ones as much as they were about, let, let me understand this. This is, I'm not sure I quite have it. And, um, you know, Jesus asked more questions than he answered. So um, I'm going to use that excuse for myself. But hopefully this passage here is a way to synthesize these different words, these different verses that we've been hearing, whether it's been from Jesus or Paul. And, um, a book I read, and I'll refer to it later, kind of helped me to understand this in a new way. And this is a passage that's familiar to us. It's, it stands as one of our key passages in how we um, do our life here together. And Paul says it this way, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by work so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. So it is by grace that you have been saved. We're going to unpack grace in just a moment. So there's this idea of grace through faith. Faith, the word here in Greek is pistis. And, you know, it really means trust. I'm trusting in, right? I've seen a lot of rhetoric around faith where people want to make faith mean certainty. If you just have enough faith, if you're just certain enough, then that is what faith is. But that's not really a biblical definition of it. Because if faith is to mean certainty, then doubt becomes the enemy. Questions become the enemy. And I don't think that's what Jesus had in mind. Rather, I think it's trust where there's this trust in a relationship, hopefully a growing trust. But there are questions, there are challenges, there's pushing in. So this idea of faith being an important part of receiving this gift of grace. And he says in verse 9, not by work so that no one can boast. So he's talking about, imagine the Pharisees, imagine, you know, um, the early church and the practices that they carried in from Judaism, like keeping the Sabbath, right? about various um, foods that they would or would not eat. These were signs that they might want to boast about. But Paul says those are not the things that get you the grace. Verse 10, he says, there are works for you to do. There is a response to this grace that God has in mind. And so I want to look at this word grace in particular here. 
So John Barclay in his book, Paul and the Power of Grace, it's a dense book. Um, I read uh, excerpts of it and a talk on it. And, and part of how he unpacks this is he goes back to the Greek, which is charis for grace. It, it can be mean gift or, or it's benefaction. It's this thing that you receive. Now, an ancient form of gift giving was very important to that culture. So if you had plenty, you want to give good gifts to those in your circles because you knew maybe a year from now, maybe my crops would be devastated and I would need other people's help. So generosity amongst your peers was encouraged. You were gift giving to form bonds and you would receive gifts. And these were gifts given with an expectation of reciprocity. So this idea that you were giving to those who are worthy, right? People in your similar social class or above you because then they would enter into this obligatory relationship. You didn't want to give gifts. You didn't want to tie yourself to obligation to somebody lower social class, right? They might not be able to pay you back. And in fact, you might be on the hook to give to them. So you didn't want to receive or give gifts to those lower than you. But there was this idea of reciprocity. If you were a stingy person, if you weren't generous, well, if you had a time of need, guess what? Nobody around you was going to help you out, right? How you lived is what you received back. So that's this idea of ancient gift giving. Contrast this with maybe an American style of gift giving or a Western style of gift giving. For me, when I think of gift coming from my culture, if it has strings attached, then that's not a gift, right? That's the opposite of gift. If it, if it comes with obligation, that's my understanding. And it's still in a, in a kind of an American or, or a Western mindset. There's still this idea of worthiness, right? There's still this idea we sing about Santa coming to town and he knows who's naughty or nice, right? And if you were nice, if you had done well, then you got a gift. And, and if you weren't, then you got coal, right? And so this concept of gift giving is kind of what I grew up with. But neither of these ideas gets at this, gift, this word charis and what it meant for the culture of the time. And Jesus uses this word, and Paul uses this word to rewrite our understanding of what gift was to mean to them. So gifts in the ancient world required reciprocity, right? Jesus, is Christ, Jesus The gift that Jesus is giving us is unconditioned, meaning that anybody can receive the gift. It doesn't matter that you're worthy. In fact, you aren't worthy of this gift. Jesus doesn't mind associating with those who are lower than himself. Actually, he came to serve, to give, just because he knew we needed that, right? Not because we were so incredible and so awesome. And yet there's this idea of reciprocity. Barclay says it this way, the gift of Jesus Christ is unconditioned, meaning that anybody can receive it. Anybody can receive this gift, but it's not unconditional. This gift demands a response. It's not a cheap gift or cheap grace, as Bonhoeffer might say. So Jesus gives his gift without regard to our worth, but it implies reciprocity, right? Jesus says, if you're going to meet my disciple, you have to pick up your 
cross and follow me. It's a gift given with expectation that it'll lead to transformation of who we are. Barclay goes on to say, this idea of grace is not so much a thing or an object, but a person, the person of Jesus Christ. God's grace is given, and it leaves us with gifts. It leaves us with his transforming work. It leaves us with spiritual gifts that aren't meant to end with just receiving them ourselves, but are meant for us to be sharing with others these gifts. His grace is meant to transform. It's meant to connect us to him. It's meant to bond us together. We receive and we're changed by it. So that understanding of grace for me has helped to synthesize, is it this belief or is it this lifestyle? And it's really both because this idea of grace is maybe a bit more complex than I grew up with. Now, I was taught that salvation when I was young was a singular event, and you were to write that day in your Bible that you got. This was the day I became saved. And that's not necessarily a bad practice to do, um, I remember being in, in youth group and we were sharing our testimonies and some people had very dramatic testimonies and then there was one girl who, who was sharing that, you know, she was in tears actually and she said, I, I don't have a moment that I started believing in Jesus. It's just been my life. I grew up in a Christian home and I've always known God's love and hopefully for children growing up in a Christian home, there's never this, I didn't believe and now I believe, but always sort of this idea um, in relationship. Now, certainly we can choose that and we have confirmation and baptism to, to do that. But this idea of salvation as a process, I think it's helpful for understanding what is meant by salvation. And Paul talks about salvation in these three different terms. We have been saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. So let's look at just a few of the verses. There's, there's many. First, we have been saved. 2 Timothy 1.9 says, he has saved us. He has saved us. This is something that has already happened. Romans 8.24, he says, for in this hope, we were saved. So this is a past event. It's already happened. There's a sense that, you know, God has done this for every believer, has forgiven us in Romans 5, Paul says, you know, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So there's this event that has happened, and it's important for us that we can say we have been saved if we've begun that journey. And I can remember praying with my mom as a young child, and I wanted to know Jesus and wanted to follow him. And I can remember starting that point in an intentional way. Now, did I know what that meant, really? To choose Jesus as Savior and Lord, well, as a six-year-old, about as much as I could, right? If that's where my understanding of what salvation stopped at as a six-year-old, it probably wouldn't be how God was wanting me to grow in relationship, right? This is an ongoing process, and so Paul says it this way, we are being saved, we are in process. In 1 Corinthians 1.18, he says, but to us who are being saved... It is the power of God. 
It's this call to growth and perseverance, this pressing into a relationship with him. And as we know in our relationships, they take work, right? It takes time. It takes energy. Paul says it in Philippians. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Work it out. It's not tick a box. You've got enough box ticks, you're in, right? It's not signing the marriage certificate. It's entering in. It's pressing in. Dallas Willard says it this way. He says, grace is opposed to earning but not effort. We get to participate in that. Part of that is here coming to church, worshiping God, remembering who he is, opening ourselves up to his transformation, right? Serving outside the church, serving inside the church, right? These are all ways that we open ourselves up to God's work in our lives. These are ways that we bring heaven to earth, this process. We participate in it. Because we all recognize we have not yet arrived. We might have anger issues, forgiveness issues, selfishness. Marriage has taught me maybe more than anything else that I can be selfish. I can want my own way. This summer... um, Eric and I will be um, in California at the same time on our anniversary, which is rare for us to be there at the same time on our anniversary, August 7th. And August 7th in 1992 is when I proposed to Erica. And she didn't know I was going to be proposing. So we're going to go back to this restaurant um, 30 years ago is when we were there. And on that night, she didn't think we were going to be engaged for another year. And... We finish our meal, and she opens up the fortune cookie that she gets, and it says, you or a friend will be married within a year. (laughs) And it was a year to the day that we got married, but that night she was thinking, this isn't happening. She's like, oh, it must be one of my friends. And I'm like, (laughs) and then I open my fortune, and it says, you still have time to change the direction of your path. I was like, whoa, that is ominous. And she says to me, you should listen to that. Hoping we were going to get engaged sooner. I was like, you don't know what you're saying, right? And so anyway, this summer will be 30 years. The restaurant is still there, and we're going to celebrate, and it'll be incredible. But that was the beginning, right? Sometimes our salvation, we have been saved, is the starting line. Right, Your close relationships, maybe a best friend, maybe a sibling, maybe a partner, a spouse, they take work. I have not been perfect in my marriage, but if my marriage was only about signing a certificate, I would have missed the point of what marriage is. This is supposed to be a key relationship in my life. It's supposed to center me, right? Change my habits, change my affections, and and draw me together and I don't always do that well. It's an ongoing work. And our salvation is as well. Relationships take work. So we are being saved. And finally, we will be saved. Paul says it this way in Romans 9. Since we now have been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him, through Jesus Christ, right? Paul also says in 1 Thessalonians 5.8, he says, we have a hope of our salvation. 
meaning there's this future salvation that will take place, this idea that one day, right, in this reconciliation, it will all come together. We will no longer have old creation with us. Our temptations, our envy, right, our jealousy, um, those things will be pushed aside, burned up, gone outside of new creation. So it's not an escape plan. Our salvation is not, how do we get off of this earth? It's a rescue plan, but it's a plan that Jesus invites us into to reconcile all of these things. That's part of our salvation is doing God's work here, bringing it all together. And we get to be a part of that. We get to be a people that brings that So we're saved from old creation, and we're saved to new creation, but we recognize the ongoing struggle that each of us has on that journey. We recognize that it's a process, that we are made in the image of God, in his likeness, and he invites us into that new identity as his chosen, as we sang earlier, that he invites us into his transforming work for ourselves, but also for this world that God has put us in. We get to shed old creation habits that aren't helpful, addictions, right? Taking advantage of other people, our own selfishness, and we get to walk in wholeness with Christ in restored relationships with God and restored relationships with one another. So we can say as followers of Jesus, I am saved, I am being saved, and I will be saved. Jesus, we thank you that you are a saving God, that you rescue us, God, and you desire us to be a part of this reconciliation, not escape. God, this brings much hope, but also humility because we recognize we are still on the way. We are still in process. God, and we come to this meal, this meal of your grace, God. We can receive, not because we're worthy, because we're loved by you. We can receive this meal knowing it connects us to you, bonds us to you in the work that you're doing in us and through us, God. And I, I know I have much to confess, whether it's my selfishness or anger, misplaced priorities, God. We bring all of that to you. Maybe our self-righteousness, our pride, our ego not loving others well, not loving you well. God, I thank you that you don't treat us as our sins deserve, but you bring forgiveness. That you bring your grace. That you desire to redeem and restore us individually, as a people, as a world, God. So do a work, God, through this meal that we get to enjoy because of who you are, God. May it be a reminder to us of our process of salvation in you. May it be a reminder of our need for you and your grace that we're not meant to do this alone, but through your strength. We thank you for who you are. In your name we pray. Amen.